and welcome back to Franklin Covey's weekly podcast on leadership with Scott Miller. That's me. I'm your host and interviewer each week. You may also know that about two years ago, I started writing a series about this podcast from HarperCollins Leadership called Master Mentors. Ten years, ten volumes in the series. Volume one and volume two are out, both in paperback book, digital audio, and now video books from Lit Video, where each year I reflect on what I think are the 30 most transformational insights shared from 30 of our favorite guests. And with their permission, I feature them in this book, short, easy, breezy. I kind of call it chicken soup for the leadership soul. Delighted to have you pick up a copy of Master Mentors to take a deeper dive in what I think are some of the truly transformative insights from our now 200 and close to 70 interviews on this series. Our guest today is the renowned author, researcher, scholar, academic professor, Arthur Brooks. He wrote the number one New York Times bestselling book. Now, we use that phrase kind of colloquially. Oh, everyone's a New York Times bestselling author. That is not true, but not everyone is a number one New York Times bestselling author. I know a few things about the topic. Look at the set behind me. This gentleman, in fact, did write a number one seller. It's called From Strength to Strength, Finding Success, Happiness, and Deep Purpose in the Second Half of Life. Arthur Brooks, welcome to On Leadership. Thank you, Scott. I'm delighted to be with you. And, and I have to say, you set it up in, in such a way where I, what I'm hoping for is I can be one of your top 30 in 2023 and make it the next volume of the series with Harper Business. One author loving another. You're in volume four. Stand by. I appreciate All right. it, sir. All right. Um, I'm going to earn my place. Let the law firm take that as a yes. So that's great. I'm <laughs> delighted you are. You heard it here. Arthur Brooks will be in volume four. Arthur, truly, the book is seminal. It's the only way to describe it. Your book has been a watershed for all generations, perhaps most mine. I'm 55 in a couple of months, and I kind of sit right there in the horrifying bell curve of on the, the downside of my relevancy, of my uh, uh, career. And you share some uh, enormous research, tender stories, reflective um, outlook on, on how to find happiness. We'll talk about all those things. Your book right. came out several months ago. You did a massive media tour. It's how I find, found you. I think I saw you on ABC News and read your book the first week it came out. Arthur, would you rewind a little bit and perhaps give our listeners and viewers a sense for how you got to where you are? You have a somewhat atypical ascent to the Harvard Business School. Perhaps it might even make you more relatable to some that are listening and watching today. Talk about what got you to Harvard Business School, and we'll talk about the insights in your new book, Strength from Strength to Strength. Thank you, Scott. You know, I had a pretty circuitous path to, to coming to the Harvard Business School, or uh, whatever I do now, started with being a professional classical French horn player all the way through my 20s. I didn't go to college. I finished college when I was about 30, as a matter of fact, by correspondence. Then went to get my PhD and became a social scientist. I was an academic for 10 years, and then I was a CEO for 10 years after that. I was a, 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 the, the chief executive of a big think tank, a nonprofit organization in Washington, D.C. called the American Enterprise Institute. I did that for 11 years, then I came back to academia. And as I was finishing up my tenure as a CEO, like a lot of the people who are watching us right now, we're thinking about leadership. They're thinking, you know, what is the point of exactly what I'm doing? I know that it's a, it's a, it's a, 
it's tricky. I mean, we have a lot of human resource officers. We have a lot of people officers and it can be frustrating. It can be hard. And I thought to myself, what did I learn as an executive that I can actually use as a scholar? What can I write that will actually kind of all bring it together such that I can help make executives and leaders better? Now, as a scholar, I specialize in the science of happiness, in the social science and the neuroscience of happiness. And what I'm trying to do, my, my, my real goal for really the rest of my career is to, is to help people who are executives at all levels of leadership to become happiness teachers. That's really the highest order potential that I think I can help people find by spreading the ideas of the secrets of happiness, by spreading the science, how it can be applied in people's lives and, and the best ways to share these ideas as well. So that's what my books are about, how everybody watching us can be a happiness teacher. Arthur, you take a moment and level set. You open the book with a very tender story about someone who sat behind you on a plane ride. Would you talk about that story as I share a couple of paragraphs in the book? Sure, absolutely. So the reason I started on this particular subject, and, and for, for our, our viewers, this subject is about finding happiness, success, and purpose in the second half of life. That doesn't mean it's only for old people, because everybody who's not old wants to get there and wants to have happiness and purpose in the second half of life. So this is about if you're there, what do you do? If you're not there yet, what should you do to prepare? That's what this book is about. And it starts off with a trip I was taking. And you know, when I was the chief executive, like everybody else, I was traveling around all the time. I was inside an airplane and I overheard a conversation behind me on a, a long flight from California to Washington, DC one night, dark. I couldn't see who they were, but I could hear their voices. And a, an, an elderly man was telling somebody, I assumed to be his wife, that he might as well be dead. And his wife was saying, oh, it's not true that you should, you, you might as well be dead. She was explaining to him that it's not true that people had forgotten him, that nobody cared about him anymore. Clearly, this guy was disconsolate and his wife was trying to encourage him by, I don't know, maybe telling him a few lies. And I thought, who is it? Well, here's who it's not, I figured. It's not the people who are watching this podcast, the people who are really making a lot out of their careers, because the world tells us that if you want to be happy as you get older, be as successful as possible and bank it and enjoy it. This guy clearly is not enjoying anything. But when we landed... And we all stood up and the light went on and I was kind of curious to get a look at the, the sad man. It turned out to be one of the most famous men in the world. This is somebody that we all know, somebody who was a hero for his exploits in the 60s and 70s. And I heard him telling his wife that he might as well be dead. And that means that either our idea of how to be happier, happy, how to be successful and happy, that that model is broken or maybe he was broken. And I went on a research project to figure out how I can personally avoid, look, I'm not the hero on the plane. He's done 10X more than I'll ever do. But how can I avoid having that conversation with my wife in 30 or 40 years? How can I make the most out of my life? How can the people watching us be successful and be happy? This is a book about the secrets of people who have done that. Arthur, you opened the book, it's quite sobering, you know, for someone like me that's in his mid fifties, had a great corporate career, 30 years in a public company, C-suite, written a few books myself, have three young sons that are eight, 10, and 12. And I'm right at that kind of peak where you really reminded us that the, the data, the science, the facts show that the second half of our careers is very, rarely like the first half, that a lot of careers and certain careers actually peak in our 20s, 30s, and 40s. And we're in that, our, our skills, if you will, start to be on the downside. Will you just share some of that research 
not our lives on the downsides, but our career skills re-sober us up as to, we, many of us, I think, may think that our peak earning years are in our maybe 40s, 50s, and 60s. And that may be true for right. some of us, but our relevance and our acumen may be on the downside. Yeah, so the funny thing that you find when you look at the data on, on when people are at the peak of their skills, in, in knowledge professions, it tends to be about age 40. This is true for you know lots of different professions. You know, I've looked at surgeons, I've looked at lawyers, I've looked at financial professionals, I've looked at scientists. You know, there's data looking at Nobel Prize winning uh, scientists and physics and 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 and, uh, and physiology and chemistry, and they almost all did their their work, their Nobel Prize winning work, um, when they were in their late 30s or early 40s. They won the prize later later on, of course. And, and what it turns out is that if you make your, your living with knowledge, knowledge and ideas, which is virtually everybody, I'm not talking about, you know, somebody who's just coming up with new theorems and inventions. I'm talking about data scientists and I'm talking about accountants. I'm talking about people who use their noggin for a living that, that you're most likely going to get better and better and better through your twenties and thirties. And you're going to max out in your late thirties, early forties. And then you're going to be in the downslope of, of, of three basic things your working memory, your ability to focus, and your innovative capacity. What made you really good at what you do actually gets harder. That doesn't mean you're gonna be incompetent. It doesn't mean anybody's gonna notice that you're not as good at, you're not progressing and getting better as a dentist than you were in the, in the past, but you're gonna notice. You're gonna notice that something is off and that's not fun. That's the reason that people start burning out in their mid forties, not because there's anything wrong with their performance for the outside world, but because they notice they're not getting better. And happiness in life comes from progress. It's never from the status quo. We're, we're creatures that are made to get better at what we do. And that is the disconcerting reality about most of our careers. Now that's only one part of the story. We're gonna, I know we're gonna get to the second part of the story because it turns out that that first skill declines, set of skills declines, but another set of skills behind it increases. And if we can get on that second set, then we can be successful all the way to the end of our lives, even if we live to be really old. I mean to belabor this because I think it's important to own the first half of this conversation to set our mindsets up for the second half. So I'd like you to take it a step further. You wrote very tenderly about your dreams and abilities as a French horn player. Take a minute and share that story to remind everybody that you probably don't get better in your 30s and 40s. You actually start to, your skills become maybe less uh, uh, sharp. Yeah, so I was making my living as a classical French horn player from a very early age. I had a kind of a, an unsuccessful run at college. Um, I, yeah, I dropped out, kicked out, splitting hairs, basically, at, at age 19. <laughs> I made it 10 months into college, you know, quite a tenure, I have to say. And after that, I went pro as a French horn player, which was my dream. That's all I ever wanted to do. I spent my entire 20s touring as a classical French horn player. My parents called it my gap decade. Okay, I mean, so, you know, there's almost nothing my kids can do that's going to alarm me, trust me. But all the way through that, <clears throat> I just assumed that I was going to get better and better and better. Now, I have since looked at the data on classical musicians. They tend to peak at age 36, just a little bit before that late 30s, early 40s. <laughs> I peaked much earlier. I peaked at about age 22. I don't know why. There's a lot of mystery in this. I was more kind of on the schedule of a baseball pitcher or something <clears throat> or a tight end in the NFL. And this is a very physical business, by the way. Being a classical musician requires, you know, fine motor skills just at, at an unbelievable level. Whatever reason, 
I, I wanted to do it for the rest of my life. It was my dream. And I started getting worse. <clears throat> now, people didn't notice. I was still, I was playing in the Barcelona Symphony. I was making a living. People, I was at the top of my game. I was a principal French horn player making good money. But I noticed I wasn't getting better. And things that used to be hard were kind of impossible for me at this point. And, and that was enormously discouraging. I went to all the best teachers in the world. Literally, I practiced as much as I possibly could. And, and nothing seemed to help. And quite frankly, Scott, I thought life was over because I didn't know life outside of my, my ambitions, my narrow ambitions as a, as a musician. It took, you know, marrying somebody who actually loved me for who I was and not because I was a musician to say, you know, you're actually a whole guy. You're not a you're not a walking appendage to the French horn. You're a person. You're a man. You're my husband. I love you. You can do lots of things and to give me the courage to look into other things, as it turns out. But that was one of the most discouraging points of my life when I actually started to see my skills in decline. Well, I think I related to a lot of that in terms of my own professional skills. I want to read two paragraphs out of your book, From Strength to Strength, and have you kind of wrap it up with uh, an insight on what is a striver and how does the striving culture help and hurt us. Be patient with me. Mm. The fact that we can't store up our glories and enjoy them when they're long past gets to the problem of dissatisfaction, a problem we'll confront later in the book. Humans simply aren't wired to enjoy an achievement long past. It's as if we were on a moving treadmill. Satisfaction from success lasts but an instant. We can enjoy it. If we do, we zip off the back of the treadmill and wipe out. So we run and run, hoping the next success, the greater than the last, will bring enduring satisfaction we crave. You continue. The decline problem is a double whammy. We need ever greater success to avoid dissatisfaction, yet our abilities to stay even are declining. No, it's actually a triple whammy because as we try to stay even, we wind up in patterns of addictive behavior such as workaholism, which puts strivers into unhealthy relationship patterns at the cost of deep connection to spouses, children, and friends. By the time the wipeout occurs, there's no one there to help us get up and dust off. I mean, you could have pushed me over with a feather, having described my 30-plus year career. Talk about the insight from that, what strivers are, and we'll get into the encouraging part of this book. Yeah, I mean, the biggest part of the book is the encouraging part of the book, but strivers, they have a curse. Nobody talks about this. Um, this is something that I was blown away by. One of the things that I find is that, that strivers who struggle to remain relevant and are unable to do so, they think they're the only one. <laughs> Everybody thinks that they're the only, it's like a secret society practically. Now, what's a striver? This is somebody who's identified as a hard worker and who holds her or himself up to an enormously high standard. Strivers are people usually that were identified as such as kids. These are people who have a big party with their career. They work harder than others. They, and they like the results that come from that. <clears throat> but the curse is this. The curse is twofold. <clears throat> There's a lot of data that show that if you're identified as a hard worker before you're 20, you're more likely than average to be disappointed with your life when you're 80. Again, it doesn't make sense. If you're identified as a hard worker, as number one, as the, you know, the gift to the world, 
by 80, you should be loving life, but that's actually wrong. And the reason is because it's really hard to live up to mom's standards and it's even harder to live up to your own. The second reason there's a striver's curse is if you have a big party with your career, it's gonna end sooner or later and you're gonna notice. Look, if you don't do anything with your life, you won't know when it's over. But if you do a lot, boy, are you ever gonna feel it when it stops. And we see all of these interesting neurophysiological effects of people after they retire. If they've had a lot of fame, they've had a lot of power. <clears throat> Even if they went out on top and retired under their own on, of their own volition, you find that their that their neurochemistry changes, and it provokes it can even provoke a clinical depression because it's hard to leave the party. That's what's going on with people. That's what the Striver's curse is. That's what a lot of people watching us may have started to to feel is going on in their lives, and they're looking for some way to understand: Am I alone? And more importantly. What can I do? And it turns out you can do a lot. So let's talk about just that. You've named the title From Strength to Strength, which really is about this big pivot in life that you encourage all of us to recognize early, or at least before it's too late, so that we can understand the characteristics of happy people, including the second right. half of our life. Let's talk about just that. What do you know to be true about happy people? So... Happy people have a lot, they're, they're, we're all different in different ways because we're all different people, but they have a number of things in common. Among strivers, among the striver set of people who work hard, play by the rules, and they win early on, happy people later in their lives, the big number one thing they have in common is they go from that first curve I talked about onto a second curve that has different skills. We promised that before. This is the first element in the happiness 401k. Okay, that's the reason that young people need to pay attention to this and not just older people. Now, the early curve that goes up and comes back down of innovation, of focus, of working memory, that makes you good at what you do as a litigator, as a startup entrepreneur, as an accountant, as somebody new in the law firm, whatever. That's called fluid intelligence. And it's been measured and it's been observed for, for generations. The great social psychologist from Britain, Raymond Cattell, was writing about fluid intelligence in, in the 1960s and the 1970s. That decreases. It's in free fall in your 50s. It's just really hard to maintain those skills. But there's another intelligence curve that all happy people later in life walk onto called your crystallized intelligence. And that has different attributes. That's not your ability to innovate. That's your ability to recognize patterns, to coach other people, to be an instructor. That's your wisdom curve. <clears throat> so you need to go from innovator to instructor, and you can do that in any profession. The happiest people walk from one curve to another. You're not relying on your working memory. You're not a ninja or a soul cowboy in solving problems. You're not coming up with a brand new solution. You're not solving every problem, but you know which problems to solve because you've seen everything before. You're also able to explain things to other people. It's incredible. You know, Scott, when I was 35, I was writing academic articles that were so that were so mathematically sophisticated, I can't understand them now. But today I'm a teacher. Today I write for 500,000 people a week in the Atlantic and I talk about research in a way that people can understand who are not social scientists. That's why I write the kinds of books that I do. So here's the, the challenge for everybody. Here's rule number one for getting happier. Go from fluid intelligence to crystallized intelligence. Find what the teacher role is in your career, what the wisdom career curve means for your life, and you will not actually have to go into decline. You'll, start, you'll keep increasing where you can keep increasing. 
Arthur, all this sounds phenomenal. And what do you say to the person that says, well, Arthur, I mean, I had to be a striver for 35 years. I had to become a vice president or make it to the C-suite. I needed the stock options. I needed the equity. I had to build my financial portfolio because the cost of elder care or living in, you know, is going to be equal to the first half of my life. I had to launch my children. I had no choice but to be a striver for 30, 40 years. And then when I left, yeah, I kind of fell off the cliff. But I mean, isn't that the reality of most people in a capitalistic society is they have no choice but to be the striver that then sets them up for unhappiness in the last part of their life? Well, the key thing to keep in mind is that the striver is, needs to strive on the fluid intelligence curve first and then on the crystallized intelligence curve later. You can design, you don't have to walk into a new job. You don't have to get a new career. You simply have to order your responsibilities in a different way and don't keep trying to do what you used to be good at. Start finding the stars who are. That's the reason that management is best left to older people typically because they have this wisdom curve. That's number one. But here's the second thing to keep in mind. We get into a mindset when we're in the early part of our lives, and this is the second way that people get happier as they get older and that successful, happy people that they have in common, call it the second part of the 401k plan for happiness, is that we get into this habit, as you just suggested, of accumulating more, 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 more stuff, more responsibilities, more prestige, more relationships, more experiences, you know, more pictures on the wall and more dollars in the bank. I get it, right? All happy older people. They start withdrawing, taking things away, subtraction as opposed to addition. Now, I'm not talking about throwing away your money. That's not what I'm talking about at all. I'm talking about thinking, not about how can I fill up the canvas of brush strokes to, to have a better painting, because that's a dense and full canvas by the time you're 45. It's by figuring out that the real work of art later in life is by chipping away the marble until you find the horse and rider within, until you find the sculpture that is you. All successful, happy people, they add and add and add in the first half of their life, and they subtract and they subtract and they subtract in the second half of life. They go from a bucket list to a reverse bucket list. They say on their birthdays, what am I going to get rid of this year that's distracting me from a happy life? What's all this stuff out there that's making my life more complicated? And I'm, I'm going to chip away and chip away and chip away. That's the skill. And that's hard just because of what you said. You get into these habits of always being on the treadmill, always having more. And after a while, you notice that even if you get more, you're not getting happier. And the reason is because you got to go from the canvas to the marble. That's the skill. Arthur, build on that. Talk about the steps to becoming happy. Is one of them trying to be happy? I know you've written about this idea of doing or eliminating things that don't make you happy. Is there a process of trying to be happy? Is it a mindset? Well, there, there, there is. The first thing to keep in mind, the first big mistake that everybody makes when they're trying to get happier, this is what I teach at Harvard. I teach to my students. And I do a lot of executive teaching inside companies of this as well. The first big mistake that people make is that, that they think that the only way for them to get happier is to eliminate the sources of their unhappiness. That's a huge error. It's an error for the following reasons. Number one, you can't do it. <laughs> Number two is that you actually need sacrifice, you need suffering, you need trouble in your life to find a sense of meaning and to learn and grow. You're not gonna be happy without meaning and purpose and meaning and purpose comes almost exclusively from difficult experiences. So the number one mistake is to stop being afraid of unhappiness. 
that unhappiness is going to come. The real thing that very successful, very happy people have later in life is that when inevitable suffering comes, they say, what am I going to learn from this? How am I going to grow from this? How am I actually going to find more meaning in this? And thus, how am I going to get happier from my unhappiness? I write about that a lot. Why did you call the book From Strength to Strength as opposed to, say, Finding Happiness or The Search for Happiness or something? Why did you call it From Strength to Strength? Well, remember, there's two curves out there. There's the fluid intelligence curve and the crystallized intelligence curve. You, you, you want to, I mean, strivers, strivers unite, man. You're climbing that curve. You're strong, strong. You're getting stronger. But the key thing is to go from that strength to the next strength. If you try to ride that fluid intelligence curve, you're going to ride it right back down. You're not going to go to your next strength. You need to know you so that you can go from strength to strength. Now, that is an ancient Hebrew blessing. It's in the Psalm, Psalm 84, Michael el Chael. In Hebrew, it means may you go from strength to strength. May you at any particular time in life get the strengths to which you're you're entitled given the work that you can put in and the natural abilities that you have in your age. What a at, at your age, what a beautiful, beautiful blessing that is. But we have to live up to it by learning the skills, adopting the habits, and taking it seriously. Arthur, in the last 30 days in my life, I have lost one 51-year-old friend to a stroke that left two teenage daughters and a wife. I lost another 47-year-old friend uh, that left three, four children under the age of 12 to a heart attack. I lost another friend to a stroke. I have another friend that's going through perhaps horrifying, maybe even terminal brain cancer. I know of another friend that's going through stage four prostate cancer, another friend that's going through stage four colon cancer. Um, you could not have told me these things in my 30s. Not possible. Right. I would have thought no, this no, book for was sure. for my father or grandfather. How do you teach people to kick their success addiction in their 30s and 40s and early 50s so that they don't have to read this book later in life and think, oh gosh, had I known this 25 years ago, I might have set myself better up for happiness. One of the things that I ask people to think about, the students that are in my class are on average 28 years old. But again, I'm talking to a lot of younger executives and younger leaders as well. And I ask the simple question, do you think that you're going to get happy by continuing to do exactly what you're doing right now? It's an interesting thing. Very successful people, they have this curse. It's called getting your heart's desire getting, you know, meeting your dreams. Why is that a curse? Because it turns out when you meet the dreams you thought were your dreams, it turns out they were the wrong dreams. And so the, old, the only thing that people tend to do is they keep running, 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 because maybe you needed more of those dreams. Maybe it was you wanted a certain amount of money and you got it and you still weren't satisfied. So maybe you need double that money or triple that money or whatever that success happens to be. So I confront people who are earlier with this question. Do you think you're going to get happier doing what you're going to do right now? And if you're not, what do you need to do differently? And what it, what it almost always is, is thinking more about the things that endure in life. When we're chasing the wrong things, we're always chasing money and power and pleasure and prestige or the admiration of other people. When we're pursuing the, the, the things that will bring true happiness in life, it's faith and family and friendship and work that serves other people. So I challenge young people to say, are you on the right track? Do you think you're really on the right track? And often they'll say to me, I don't think I am, but I don't see any other track. I say, let's work on getting on the right track right now. Why? Because you just as you articulated, you don't know. 
Scott, it's your friends. It could have been you. You don't know when the party's going to come to an end. You actually need to dig in, pay attention to the love in your life, the relationships that matter. You can't just have deal friends. You got to have real friends. You should have more than a cordial relationship with your children. You need to, your best friend should be your spouse if you're married. But that takes actual work. That takes actual commitment. And it's time to get after that right now, no matter what age you are. Arthur, we're coming to the end of our time. I spent the first 27 years of my life in Orlando, palm trees. And the second 27 years of my life in Utah, Aspens. You write a chapter about cultivating your Aspen Grove for those still in Orlando that haven't been out to the Mountain West. Talk about what an Aspen Grove is and why it's such an important contribution to happiness in life. Yeah, Utah's state tree is the quaking Aspen. That's the Aspen that we that we typically associate with Aspen, Colorado, but it's all over the Mountain West. That's that beautiful tree with the white bark and the, the leaves that are green and then turn golden during the middle of the summer. So beautiful. And we often think of ourselves as strivers, you know, using that metaphor of the stately tree, you know, strong, you can take shade under it, solitary and, you know, lonely, whatever, but strong is the point. Well, it turns out that the metaphor of the aspen tree is quite apt for the mistake that we tend to make as strivers, as strong individualistic people. An aspen tree is not a single plant. The truth is, and I did not know this, I'm not a botanist, I'm a social scientist, but a botanist informed me that in any stand of aspen trees, there's only one plant, that each aspen tree is actually a shoot out of the same root system. Each individual aspen tree is part of the same plant. And here's the mistake that we make, thinking that we are individuals disconnected from the other people in our lives. We pay so much attention to our leaves when we should be paying attention to our roots. Now, a lot of people will say, I don't have time. I don't have time. But I tell a story in this book that's had a lot of pathos for me. I was, I was interviewing a woman on Wall Street who was enormously successful, my age, but I'm 58, same age as me, but really deeply unhappy. And she said, you know, my husband and I were roommates. You know, it's like my kids, I barely know them. You know, and, and I'm not making crisp decisions in my firm. I think I drink too much. My health isn't good anymore. What do I do? And I said, you don't have to ask a Harvard professor. You know what to do to take care of yourself. Why have you never done those things? And why have you worked yourself to death instead? And she said, I guess I've always chosen to be special rather than happy. Boom. I mean, it's like a mic drop for me because I've done that too, Scott. I was a CEO and there were many times that I chose the 14th hour of work before the first hour with my kids. When I shined my leaves late into the night as opposed to cultivating my roots, which is what I had to do. We all need to stop making that mistake. Remember, you are what looks like a single aspen tree, but what, which is what is one part of the sum of the love in your life, which is the root system underneath your feet. I chose to be special as opposed to being happy. Arthur, give our millions of listeners and viewers from around the world some clear steps to do when they stop listening to this podcast in the next three or four minutes. What's next for everyone? Let's think about just a little formula that we can all remember. Okay, now the book has step after step after step after step. If you get the book, it's all in black and white. You can read the book and it's fine. But let me leave sort of our audience with just one thing to think about. All of the unhappy people 
later in life, successful, unsuccessful, but I'm especially talking about strivers. They all have one thing in common. They have a formula for living their life that's wrong. The formula is use people, love things, and worship yourself. Now, I don't mean that disparagingly. It's very easy to fall into that trap. Why? Because, you know, stuff is nice. I can get it with all the rewards of being a successful striver. And people, you know, I mean, you, they, you know, I treat them right, right? But really, they're all about working together so that we can be successful. And, and who am I relying on? Me. But that boils down to use people, love things, and worship myself. The right formula for people who are really happy at the end of their lives People who have done a lot, have been really successful, but are deeply satisfied with their lives at the end of their lives, they have the same formula almost. They just change the verbs and the nouns around. Here's what they do. They use things with happiness and abundance. They love people. They truly love people and only love people. And they worship the divine because only the divine is worth worshiping. And again, I'm not going to tell you what all that means. I mean, you know what people means. You know what things mean. You got to figure out what the divine means and then live according to the right formula. Follow that formula. You will be happy. And all of the other lessons in this book, they'll tend to fall into place. I mean, the Dalai Lama endorsed your book. Seriously? Is that like the one book in his entire life he may have endorsed? <laughs> no, I'm sure he's done others. I'm going to see him next month, although we're going to uh, Dharamsala. I have my lab at my happiness lab at Harvard. We're going to go see him. He's tr truly somebody who's changed my life. He's, you know, you say don't meet your heroes. In that case, it only gets better when you meet them. Arthur, did you know this book would be as successful as it was? I mean, it swept at least, you know, the Western Hemisphere by storm this year, number one in the New York Times. When you released it, did you feel like this is going to strike a nerve? I didn't know. My wife thought it would. But, you know, you've written a bunch of books. You know that books are a fickle thing. You never know what's going to happen. Um, but I, I, I offered it up as my, you know, my privilege to offer to my sisters and brothers that are trying to do a lot with their lives. And as a result, they're helping our society, they're helping our economy, they're doing great good, and you deserve to be happy. And so for all the people, the strivers out there, I wrote it for you and I wrote it for me. Because when we as leaders, and I guess this is one of the big points of this wonderful podcast and, and, and YouTube program that you, that you have, is that when you as a leader are happy, the world gets happier as well. This is really about other people. And, and, and this is how we can all be happiness teachers. That's why I wrote the book. That's the reason I wrote the book. That's the reason I offered it up. And if it had market success, all the better to get the message out there. Well, I think you've offered to leaders, leaders of people inside organizations, a great gift to ask them, you know, are you trying to be special? Are you trying to be happy? And to what extent are you creating a culture that rewards special versus happy? Engaged versus disengaged, strivers versus burnout. I think it's a right. great thought for all of us to ponder. The book is From Strength to Strength, Finding Success, Happiness, and Deep Purpose in the Second Half of Life. Arthur Brooks, thank you for your time today. Thank you, Scott. Thanks to all our viewers as well. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership. Mm -hmm.